this afternoon is a chance to uh, reflect. And when I talk about reflection on the on the Dhamma, then what I what I mean to do is what I say is to be. Uh, how does it affect you? You know, how does it reach you? And to begin to notice how words and and uh, way things are said, uh, how they how they feel. Because sometimes you set up on a high seat like this, and then you you have a your titled uh, authority, uh, a master of something or other, and then the tendency to to uh, just believe or disbelief. Some people have strong views about Buddhism as be- meaning this or that, and and others have various uh, angles on it from various schools uh, of Buddhism. And so we recognize that Buddhism is a is a convention, meaning that it is uh, it is a uh, something that is created. And so we have form in words. It's a, it's a teaching that that um, has come down to us from several thousand years, uh, given by the what we regard as the Lord Buddha Himself. And so this gives it a lot of credibility. <clears throat> but the main thing to me, the value of the Buddha's teaching is is not just its historicity or the the conventional form, but how it affects us, how it reaches us in terms of the immediate present. Uh, because this is one of the things that this is the, in the, the thing that really attracted many of us to Buddhism was that it's a, a teaching that points at reality rather than defines reality. So this pointing to reality is in here. It's not, I'm not pointing to something outside you or that I'm, I'm the authority on Buddhist teachings and, and that what I say is what the Buddha taught. But the, the teachings themselves, the words, the conventions, the forms that we inherit in this uh, Buddhist form are pointing at you, actually, at each one of us. So this whole system of mindfulness, this, uh, this is the es- essence of Buddhist teaching, is awakened awareness. So the Buddha actually means awakened. So the word itself is, is not the name of a person. It isn't meant to convey a devotion to a, a person or historical personage, but to convey that sense of awakening, which is something we're all capable of doing. It's not asking uh, something, uh, an impossible task, or that only a few very special people can possibly do. I mean, awakeness is something that uh, is natural to us. And awakening then isn't just the fact that we're sitting here, we think we're awake, but we're actually open at the same time, we, we can, we can, we know what's going on inside ourselves at this moment. You, you're listening to my words and at the same time you can actually be aware of, of how you're feeling. You know, what state of mind or emotional quality or physical state that you happen to be experiencing at this moment. So awakeness includes everything. It's, uh, it's like a, uh, an inclusive ability. When we concentrate, then we concentrate on one thing, and that means that we exclude the other things that we that aren't conducive towards absorption into the object. But with mindfulness, it's the opening of the heart, or in Pali terms, the jitta, that, um, or consciousness, that we uh, began to, to really 
observe and know how things are rather than just make assumptions from habits of mind, conditioning factors, uh, the the way we've you know we, the way we've been habitually uh, conditioned to perceive or react to experience. So the first uh, this is the first talk of the summer on love in a world of hate because love and hate are powerful words and they're quite common in English and we use the word love for almost anything. You know, it's a it's a powerful word, and it, it, it and we all subscribe. We all uh, would like to love and be loved and experience love. And and what do we mean by that? And what is the reality of love, rather than a def- definition of it? So there's romantic love when you fall in love with somebody and you have these these strong feelings where uh, like and attraction come together and and oftentimes obsession you get you can get besotted when you fall in love can't think of anyone else and so that's that's what we call romantic love and then then there's the a kind of just a way of using i love you know i love flowers and i love the birds and I love the trees and the mountains. I love my mother and father and my friends. I mean, you're not obsessed, maybe, by this emotion. <laughs> and you love fish and chips in England. <laughs> I love football. I love David Beckham. <laughs> And then the unconditioned love, or Christian love, you know, in a country where Christianity is the dominant religious form, they talk about Christian love, or what they, what I assume that means is unconditioned love. It's not, it's not towards an object in particular, it's not fixing on a person or, or an idea, but it is a state of being that we, uh, can all realize but oftentimes not notice. So it's not a sentimental kind of experience where, because sometimes we feel hatred for somebody that we can also love. So with many of our relationships, we, we call them in modern terms, psychological terms, love-hate relationships. Because uh, you're supposed to love somebody, like your parents, and sometimes you don't. Sometimes you feel anger toward them or hatred, or you love your husband or wife and then you feel anger and resentment. Then you think love has disappeared because the power of anger or hatred has as dominating consciousness. So in a world of hatred, at this time we can see there's so much of this negativity just on the international scene where there's so much anger and and revenge is dominant and uh, desire to to destroy the evil forces, the focus of evil. The United States now is taking a stand against evil and uh, determined to destroy it. And and uh, this, of course, is is has a certain logic to it. When we, when something happens to us that, that is very horrible, when we're unjustifiably, unmercifully treated, and that which we love and cherish is attacked and destroyed, then we can't help but feel a desire for revenge, an emotional reaction, wanting to destroy that which, that, that harmed or destroyed what I love and respect. But through all these different Emotional states, romantic love, uh, anger and hatred, desire for revenge, desire for justice, righteous uh, outrage, uh, righteous indignation, uh, these kind of strong emotional experiences, the possibility of being awake to them is, is here and now.
because the human mind is what we call a reflective mind. We're not, we can easily become our emotions and be totally bound up and overwhelmed by them, but there's a part of us that needn't be. And if we begin to to reflect, to open to the way we're feeling in the present, no matter how painful or how strong the emotion might be, then we're in the state of awakened awareness, awakenness. Or you can call it Buddhahood. The Buddha is the awakening, the awakened state of being. You can't become a Buddha. So it's not like I have to try to become some ideal called Buddha, but it's a very imminent reality of the awakened consciousness, consciousness that is influenced by awakened awareness, not by the emotional power that you may be undergoing in the present. Well, this is a very important realization. It's uh, in the in the Buddhist context, in the Four Noble Truths, this is uh, a reality. You realize this. Because it's not something you attain or that you, you know, that is an achievement of any sort. Uh, awakenness is not an attainment. So when, when we talk about attaining Buddhahood or uh or awakenness, then we, we're conceptualizing. We're caught in some idea, some definition of it, rather than trusting in the reality of being awake. And so this takes a, a determination to learn how to trust in the reality of here and now, of just your own pure presence, the state of, you're, we're all conscious at this moment, we're conscious beings and so um, this is this is just a fact consciousness is like this so it's uh, and it, you think well what, is, what does that mean consciousness is another word that that everybody tries to define and, and uh, kind of come up with various views about consciousness when the reality of it is always present it's awakening to the reality of being conscious. So this is what, what I generally refer to as intuitive awareness. The intuitive ability or intuitive intelligence isn't an acquired, isn't acquired, by, it's a, it's a, it's a, rea, it's a recognition, a, a realization of it. <clears throat> so it's interesting, it's always, Moved me a lot in the, in the fact that the Buddha established a religious teaching that has survived for 2,500 years on the reality of suffering. That, that human beings, when we're not awake, when we're not aware, when we're caught into the, the apparentness or the seemingness or the habitual reactions or thoughts or prejudices or biases that we hold in, then uh, we we create suffering. Now this is this. So the first noble truth is the truth that that there is this suffering. So the then the Buddha encourages us, directs our attention to awaken to this suffering, to begin to notice it, understand it. It's not not like you're blaming it on somebody. It's not not going around blaming somebody else, even if somebody else is is treating you badly, and and you could easily say that that person really causes me to suffer. Uh, that's not what we're pointing at. We're not looking at even the 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 meanness and nastiness of others towards oneself as the cause, but the suffering that we have that we create around being misunderstood or maltreated or abused. In the many years uh, that I've been in, involved in meditation, and it becomes more and more apparent <clears throat> that then unconditioned love 
is our true nature, putting it in, in these terms. Because when you really let go of, of everything, when you, when you re relinquish this blind attachment to the thoughts, the memories, the emotions, the physical body, all that we tend to uh, identify and cling to and, and react to, when we experience this non-attachment, then out of that non-attachment, uh, we, we experience, uh, an emptiness. Now this emptiness isn't like a, an unconscious blank. It's not, when you say em the words like emptiness, logically sound like you, you just kind of let go and, and you go into a kind of unconscious state, uh, a blindness of no feeling and, and nothing, nothingness. And that's logic. That's the way logic works. So intuitive awareness isn't logical. It's not, not figuring it out, analyzing it, or defining, or limiting anything. But it's learning to trust in direct experience, in the reality of awareness, and begin to trust your own experience of that. Now, so many people in the, in most of us who come to Buddhism when we're adults, you know, most of us have become Buddhists when we were already grown up. We've been conditioned by other religious experiences, religious conventions, or non-religious conventions. So we, we come from a society, many of us, that, that are based on different principles. And so we, we, our way of thinking, the logic <clears throat> that we use is very much affected by that. <clears throat> so, judging from my own experience, from a strong Christian background, where the, where the, the basic assumption is that of being a sinner. Though this is a, the idea that we were born, born in sin, and that sin is, is what we are, and we have to try to uh, live in a way that we somehow purify ourselves to be free from this taint. Now, I'm not saying that is the <clears throat> true Christian doctrine, but that's the way I heard it. <laughs> that's the way I picked it up in my experience. So I'm not, not saying this in order to, to diminish Christian, Christianity, but just using an example from my own experience, because that's what I, what I learned from. I mean, I can't make assumptions about your, uh, I can't say what, what your experience is. <clears throat> so that very sense of, of, of sin, of being someone who's, who's a sinner who has to become purified has a certain effect on how we see and experience life. And even though as I grew up and I began to question this, uh, you know, I could, you know, logically I didn't agree with it when I started thinking and, and came across more scientific ways of looking at life and modern psychology and, and, uh, you know, kind of went, went through the universities and degrees and that. And, and so I could easily logically dismiss this, uh, because I would come from another position. And uh, so then, then, uh, but then I also began to realize when I became a Buddhist monk, living in Thailand, that so much of the, you know, how I picked up the things around me, how I, how I would interpret experience living in a Buddhist country in a Buddhist monastery with a Buddhist teacher, would easily get uh, influenced by. Not particular, not conscious, rather unconscious or unrecognized assumptions. So there's this sense of a self, a strong sense of self that, that I've acquired from, from the sense of being born a sinner. Because you, you, you take the, we, t I took this very personally. And then the denial of that, I'm not a sinner. And, and that is, is really operating in the same way. You know, I am a sinner, I'm not a sinner, are ways of thinking about yourself 
that that are personal. So thought itself is very limited. Uh, you see, when you try to analyze and think through and, and develop uh, uh, thoughts and theories and ideas through through reason and logic, then you're always coming from some some state of mind, like certain assumptions you make. Like if, if I'm, if I see myself as a sinner, then the, then I can logically deduct from that assumption. And I can see all kinds of proof that I am. And I can see uh, that, that, that's true. You know, I do, I think sometimes sinful things. What I would regard from my cultural background as sinful thoughts or have sinful feelings or uh, certainly the desire for revenge. Vendettas is certainly emotions I've experienced. Wanting to, to destroy someone who's, who's hurt me or harmed me in some way is not an emotion, uh, that I've never felt. And then I, then, then the judgment comes in that this is a sinful thing. You know, this is a, a wrong kind of emotion and that I should try to get rid of it. So there's logic there. You know, it's a reasonable thing to, to assume you deduct from that particular statement. I'm not a sinner. And then I can deduct from that the same, as a, uh, a way of looking at myself that, that, uh, that I can feel much more positive about myself when I think I'm not a sinner. But then, because the original conditioning was so fraught with the idea of being a sinner, then there's always this sense of who are you trying to fool? Look at, look at what, what you did the other day and what you should have done, the sins of omission, sins of commission, uh, see all the kind of inadequacies and, and faults, weaknesses, and very good at, at picking out what's wrong with me. So, and from my condition, it's easier to make a case for me as a sinner than not. <laughs> But then uh, the the um, with the Buddha's uh, emphasis on dukkha or suffering as the Aryan noble truth, it's a a noble truth, and that's interesting. They put it under the title Aryan noble truth, which is Arya means means noble. What's noble about suffering? You know, you think it's a it's a depressing fact of life. You know, that we have to suffer. You know, I used to feel angry when I was a child with God. I think, why, why did he create sin? <clears throat> and then I was born and had to go through all this suffering because uh, my mother told me, well, God was lonely and wanted company. Uh, <laughs> that's a cruel thing to do, isn't it? <laughs> I thought, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> At least at that age, I, I, a child's mind gravitates to logic. You want things to be fair and just. And, and if you're coming from God created everything, then why, why is there evil? Why is there sin? So logic itself is, is a function that we have, which is not to be... Uh, Despised because thinking and uh, uh, is a is a great gift. But how to think in a way that is useful, in a way that helps us to see things clearly, or are we just thinking out of habit? You know, do we have we can just wander on and on and on, just wander all over the place in thought, and one thought goes on to another thought, and another thought, and another thought. And so you start with this one thought and in a few minutes you're all over the place. Or then if you're particularly, uh, you know, doing some kind of solution to a problem, then you use thinking in a more confined way through uh, logical deduction. So this, uh, this then, so that, that has a skill, you know, that they use in science to, to deduct from, from uh, a premise. Uh, through and, and the logical expressions that come out of that uh, is a skillful use of the thinking function. 
But then so much of our thoughts are not just logical or reasonable, but they come from emotional experience. So we get confused, don't we? We have somebody says something that really hurts our feelings. We feel wounded and betrayed by somebody. And then what kind of thoughts come up in your mind? You know, so then it's, it, they're not reasonable thoughts. You know, because you reason it out, you could convince yourself, well, it's really his fault, you know, it's his problem. He, it's his, you know, he's, he's abused me and condemned me for something that's not true. And I can see he's probably just jealous and, and some way he's wounded and, and I can make a case of a kind of understanding, trying to understand and not be, uh, caught in the, in the actual emotion of anger and resentment. So then, then I'm not noticing how I'm feeling, I'm just being incredibly kind of reasonable about it uh, and suppressing the actual emotion that's taking place. So then the emotional comes up and it says, that so-and-so, that, <laughs> you know, if I could get my way, I'd go and drop a bomb in his house tonight. And then <laughs> or if I'm not into being a terrorist, I'll, I'll really make him suffer, I won't speak to him again. Or I'll go around looking hurt and wounded so that maybe he'll feel sorry. <laughs> Ways of sulking or what children do, isn't it? You have, and these are emotional, uh, patterns that we, we have that are not reasonable. But we, we think about them. We think, I'm, I'm hurt. He's the cause. He shouldn't have said that to me. And I'll never forgive him. So maybe that's true. Maybe he shouldn't have said that, and it was wrong, and that he should ask for forgiveness. He should apologize and make amends, and that and I should be able to. That would be fair, you know, for somebody who's done something wrong to to admit it, to confess, fess up, and just you know, I then I can forget it. I can forgive. But problem is that people oftentimes say these things, they're fully convinced they're right when they're insulting me. <laughs> so, so then who's right and who isn't? You know? One gets very confused. Then, then my nature is to be, try to be magnanimous and feel, uh, a, aversion to my, uh, emotional reactions. You know, so you feel anger and, and hatred arises, and you feel, I don't love them, I'm just, there's total absence of love for that person. You know, I can love everybody else but that one. There's no problem with, with all the people, especially the people I don't know, masses of people in all these countries that you don't know, spread metta, loving kindness to them is easy. But that, that, that monk that really offended me, can't do it. And every time they say, now spread metta towards the, your enemies. Ah. <laughs> so this word metta, and to introduce this word, for those of you that don't know it, it's a Buddhist term for uh, loving kindness or unconditioned love. Now as you get to know yourself better through awareness, intuitive awareness, then uh, you begin to recognize these patterns. The, you know, how the, the one side of you is being very reasonable, magnanimous and understanding, and another part of you is feeling very hurt and angry and revengeful. So we get, we get very confused by that. And I've seen so many people totally confused in situations because they're well-educated, reasonable, sensible, uh, normal people. And yet they, they, they're really angry and upset and, uh, furious and outraged and they, they don't want that. We'd all like, you know, when we're in a good state of mind, we all can feel kind of universal love for everything in a general, general idea, but that's still clinging to an ideal of love. In the realities of experience then, the intuitive awareness brings us to a state where 
I now recognize or call this unconditioned love. Because I see the more I trust in this awareness, then that awareness itself, as I learn to rest in it and trust it, it's not a created state of mind. It's not a cultural conditioning factor. It's not, it's not something I've attained through Buddhism. It's a natural state that, that, uh, that we tend to ignore. That is, is overlooked all the time because of our strong attachments, identities to our own, to our, our bodies, to our emotional habits, mental states, thoughts, and so forth. The, the, this blinds us to the reality of unconditioned love. So that's why we can, we can subscribe to the idea of love unconditioned love, and at the same moment feel hatred for somebody. Because uh, the intellectual side may, you know, likes the idea, but we attach the ideal of it. The emotional uh, habits are such that they, they're working from uh, this sense of I'm wounded and hurt and it's not fair, it's not right. And then the conflict goes between the, the brain and the heart. Have you, and have you ever experienced that problem? Where this, this battle goes on. <laughs> so the, the head, you know, I thought that's where the reasonable, we can reason and, and, and so forth. And the heart is where we feel things. We feel broken hearted. And then, then the thing, Ajahn Tomato, my partner ran away with somebody else and I'm bereft and broken hearted. And I say, all conditions are impermanent. <laughs> and somehow they don't feel satisfied with that answer. <laughs> True though, you know, <laughs> told the truth, but, <laughs> but, uh, but that, that's not what they need at the time is, is some wise statement, isn't it? They, they need, uh, maybe just to be listened to, you know, to be directed to, toward awakening, toward, toward, uh, trusting in themselves to, and to, and oftentimes that's done through, through allowing them to say how they feel, to learn how to listen to somebody when they're in an emotional state that isn't reasonable or, or even good or that it's, it might be angry and full of curses and, and whatnot. And we can feel, you know, quite averse to what they're saying in terms of if we, if we just react to it or we pick up intuitively the need, they, the, their need to be listened to for them to be able to get some perspective on their own feelings. Because sometimes we need to, we need to make these emotions very conscious. We have to allow them into consciousness, not just censor them because they aren't good or right, or we're told that they're sinful feelings and we shouldn't be thinking or feeling the way we are. And then we get caught in the struggle between the, the idealized, uh, sense of what what should be and and the reality of the feeling in the moment making value judgments about it so with intuitive awareness what i mean by this means our ability to even listen to ourselves you can actually know when you're very upset very angry very hurt and you know you are you say, I feel very upset and angry and hurt. So there's, there's, uh, you know, there's a part of you that knows that this is, that, that, that you're experiencing these, uh, these emotions. What is it that knows this? If you were really the anger and the hurt, could, could you really recognize it as such? You know, like, like say, with animals, a good, good ways of reflecting on animal behavior. When a cat is angry, 
It doesn't say, I feel very angry with you because you gave me the wrong cat food this morning. <laughs> they just become angry. <laughs> and uh, and it, they, they don't... They don't know they're angry. They, they are angry. And so they, they can't reflect. But because we actually can know that I've, I can at least, uh, for myself, I assume we're, we all have this in common. And when I, when anger rises, I know it. And this knowing is, uh, is a, re is the ability we have to, to, um, recognize the way it is. If we didn't have this reflective capacity, then we would merely be like uh, the cat. We, you know, the anger. If you do something, I get angry, and I'm just totally angry at that moment without any reflective knowledge, just reacting out of anger to what has happened. And we're all capable of doing that. I've done that too. Just react. But there's also this. This ability to reflect on it, to know I'm feeling hurt and angry, outraged. And then as we begin to, to recognize this ability to know and understand, we're, we're recognizing, we're not judging it now. We're not saying, we're not passing judgment on the angry feelings or thoughts that we're having. It's merely a way of admitting it. So it's allowed as a conscious into consciousness. So consciousness is, is the kind of door that we can liberate the mind through, learning how to use our consciousness in a skillful way with wisdom rather than just creating endless problems and complications uh, through, con through being conscious, which we can easily do also. So this is where the, the need to trust yourself, this sense of faith or sata in Pali is, isn't, isn't, uh, you know, when we say faith, then, then this word in English, oftentimes I mean you believe in things that you can't prove, you know. Do you believe in the Buddha? Do you have faith in the Buddha? And then the skeptic, I don't know, I don't know what Buddha is, I don't, and others that, that are, are, you know, have, will, will believe and say the Buddha has the true teaching and they'll believe you. Others will not believe me. But what you can know in that moment is believing or not believing is, is something you're creating in the mind, in the present. So then this is actually the, the Buddhahood or the knowing this awakened state, you, that's what I call refuge in the Buddha. Because when you, when you quote, become Buddhist, you take the refuge in the Buddha, which doesn't mean you, you, it's not a belief system, not asking you to believe in, in some force called Buddha or some historical personage, but it's, a, it's a, a reminder of this ability that we all have of awakened awareness, because this is, this is, what I, what I always, what this refuge in Buddha means to me. It's practical, it's functional, it works. Then as you trust this awareness more and more, because it's a natural state, it's not something that that, that, uh, you know, is dependent on things being ideal. Like problem with formal meditation practices oftentimes or retreats is that people attach to ideal conditions. Like in the retreat center here, we try to set up a retreat where there's ide as ideal conditions we, we can generate on this planet. You know, noble silence. No talking, <laughs> and then you, then you, you, uh, you, you know, you try to tell all the people in the restaurant you've done now, stay away from the retreat center, don't bother them, and then uh, we try to get the gardeners and the one who mows the lawn not to, to you know, create too much noise, and uh, and uh, hopefully that uh, 
somebody in the retreat doesn't snore during the meditation and <laughs> and uh, you know you're trying to control a situation make people uh, be quiet because uh, talking chit chat stirs the mind up you know, so you you're controlling the environment to uh, subdue the distractions through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body. Try to minimize that as much as possible because then we, when the, there's an absence of exciting or strident sensual stimuli, then of course uh, there's a natural calm that comes to the mind. Sensory deprivation. And then if you deprive your senses of, of, uh, being irritated or impinged on, you know, after you get over the initial restlessness and fear of, of that and resistance to it, then you, you naturally move into a calm state because there's nothing, uh, stimulating happening. So, Many, many of us have thought, you know, in our lives, in the meditation life, ideal situations where these, uh, the harsh impingement and duties, responsibilities, irritating factors are minimal so that we can more and more have this experience of calm and tranquility that comes through, through those conditions. So that's why in a, in a meditation retreat, we're, we're trying to create, control the situation enough to, to where people begin to recognize the, 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 their natural potential for the, that possibility, that ever-present reality, in other words, of this state of stillness, emptiness. Or we call it bliss. You know, it's, uh, and it's not, it's not a high. It's not like you, you, you've, uh, you've generated a, a high emotional level of refinement, but it, it's a natural state of being. So, then the, uh, then when we go out from the retreat and go back into London, then what happens? You know, everything seems even worse. This, uh, you know, the, the noisy streets of London and the, and the, you know, the family problems and work and suddenly you can't stand it. It's even, you know, where you, before you could kind of, you've gotten used to it so you could kind of get through a day without dropping into hell too many times. But after a meditation retreat, you, <laughs> you want to become a monk or a nun. <laughs> So I never recruit after meditation. <laughs> it's like I remember during the my youth in the in the, during the Korean War. I remember uh, they you know they wanted people to volunteer to join the army so, or the Marines. So in Seattle, where I lived, the in the movie theaters, you know, they'd play one of these great kind of uh, heroic films about Marines, American Marines, uh, conquering the enemy and saving all the ladies in distress and giving sweets to the kiddies. And uh, you're so inspired. <laughs> you go out and there's a, there's, a, there's a sergeant out there signing you up. <laughs> So then the, the thing is to, you know, to, to, this is where the need to trust in your awareness is so important. Because as long as you see that you can only get tranquil through controlling your life, through, through ideal conditions, then you'll, you'll always be looking for ideal conditions. You know, you, so you, you know, and very few of us can, can actually live in situations for long periods of time where the conditions are what we really like and want for this kind of experience. And so then we, we get irritated. We get very irritated, but sometimes 
I've heard monks and nuns complain about the birds. <laughs> make too much noise. <laughs> you know, I want the whole world to just shut up for my tranquility. You know, asking a lot, isn't it? And so we run about looking for ideal situations, monasteries, lifestyles, environments where we we can have these perfect conditions where we can experience this more and more. But we haven't reflected on what we're doing yet. It's not that even got, trying to find ideal conditions, there's nothing wrong with that or that we shouldn't do it, but to know what you're doing. As long as you hold the view that I have to have ideal conditions in order to have this state of tranquility, then then you'll always, if that's what you're operating from, that's your premise, then the logic will come from that. So that's where, in the, in the Buddha's teaching, he's pointing not to a premise of an ideal or a metaphysical reality, but pointing to an existential reality that we can still have under ideal conditions. You know, so, you know, when you're in ideal conditions, and then somebody slams the door and people are, come into the, into the temple and they start talking in a loud voice and you're just, you know, in a state of bliss. And then, and then, then these noisy people come in and get angry. Because they've disrupted, you know, they've, 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 they've broken the, the, the instead of, of this tranquility, you feel anger and resentment towards them. But to recognize this, this reality, this reality and be able to integrate it. The sense of I have to have the best conditions for my practice. I have to have the best teacher. I have to have the best situation. I have to have just right. And then I can really get, get to my practice. Not that this is even wrong in itself, but the grasping of that view will always make you discontented because very seldom do conditions come together where you feel this is this, that you're you're getting what you want sometimes they might you know the conditions come together now it's just perfect but you know you can't sustain it because it's dependent on conditions that you have no control over you know we have very little control over the conditioned realm so then instead of of operating from I need ideal conditions, be aware of this, this attachment we have to peace and quiet, to, to calm, not to, not, you know, not as a critical, uh, not to criticize it, but to recognize this longing, this wanting, this, this, this demand on life to have these certain conditions fulfilled. And just see what that is. And then you're aware of the dukkha or the suffering of even in the best conditions that this planetary life can offer us, there's still, we can experience suffering. So in this first noble truth, the, uh, there is this suffering. The Buddha said, suffering should be understood. You know, to understand something, you have to go to it. You have to look at the reality of it. Suffering is like this, wanting, wanting to sustain tranquility and and not wanting to lose it. Wanting to be tranquil and calm all the time and really resenting it when 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 you're not and blaming either yourself or the environment. So who is aware of this, you know? You, you know, this is the encouragement to awaken to these tendencies towards trying to become something, get something you don't have, or trying to get rid of something you have that you don't want. Also, too much tranquility, sometimes we get too much peace, can be really boring. You know, so I mean, it's... Uh, peace is not exciting, you know, it doesn't stimulate. So, so you, when you're upset, confused, and in a mess that you want it, and then when you have it, sometimes you can't stand it. So then, uh, 
then you want to want some excitement. You know, want to go live, live a, have a party or do something interesting. <laughs> so that, that on the term, on the level of created mental states and that there's no satisfaction in any of them. You know, there's no way you can, can find a refuge in the, in the material world, in a mental world, in emotional experience. Because these things are always subject to other conditions. They're they're going to change and the conditions change and things happen in a way that we have no control over and we just have, what can we do about it? So the Buddha's answer to that question then is to awaken to it. Suffering is like this. So then under all conditions, whether it's, it's in the midst of a battlefield or it's uh, on a most perfect kind of environment where everything is just what you've always wanted or whatever, you know, in the middle of London or at Amravati. You, you start with, you, you begin to recognize the suffering. So the feeling of discontented or restlessness or um, whatever you're feeling, wherever you are, aversion, uh, uh, attachment, longing, resentment, jealousy, fear. So in this way, you you begin to, to and it's not a criticism. It's not to say any, give any kind of moral judgment or value judgment to whatever you're feeling. It's just to recognize it's like this. Feeling anxiety is like this. Fear, feeling frightened or threatened by something is like this. Feeling jealous is like this. Angry or greed is like this. So, you know, as I'm saying, it's like this. Just to point to the reality of it when it's present. So, without judging it. Because many of us will make some kind of judgment about, you know, how bad it is to, to feel jealousy. Or how, you know, we feel anxious and, and that we shouldn't. We, you know, a normal person should be, you know, well adjusted and, and free from anxiety. And we'd like to be free of anxiety and we feel anxious and we, we shouldn't, you know, on an ideal level. So that's, he's not, Buddha is not asking us to do that. To recognize, to say the, this first noble truth takes us to a, a reality of a state of being that is changing. And as you learn to to recognize these things as they are, as soon as you pass some kind of judgment on them, then they become more than what they are. You know, so it's, it's, as soon as you add something, like a, a value judgment of some sort, then it it then it becomes more than what it is. So it, it you, you get caught in it, and it becomes increasingly complicated. But if you begin to trust yourself just to recognize the feeling, the, the energetic quality of, of being in the body, the emotional atmosphere, mood, as it's just like this, as you're more willing to accept that as in, through consciousness, in consciousness, then your, then your, 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 your relationship to it is accepting it, not judging it, not liking it, not hating it, it is what it is. And then you can be aware of how it changes. These things, you know, they're innate, all conditions are impermanent, so they change. Now we can know that, intellectually everything changes, but not realize change when it's actually happening. So in awareness, we're actually realizing, recognizing change as it's actually taking place. So like in suffering, emotional suffering, anguish, whatever, recognizing it, accepting it, then what happens? I find it, I can't sustain it. It, it kind of dissolves and moves away. So, and, and I'm in this, in this state of awareness, 
I'm not resisting, I'm not creating it into anything. It is what it is, I'm not lying to myself, I'm not trying to pretend, you know, or blame it on anybody or myself included. So, it drops. And in that, when it drops, then you're aware of the end of suffering. Now that's not the end of suffering, you know, in a, in a, you know, like you'll never experience suffering again. Now that's the end, uh, you're, you're not, because you're not judging it or, or personalizing it, personifying the suffering, you're seeing the end of suffering and you realize the natural state of awareness, consciousness operating together. Now this then is a sustainable, because this is natural, it's not, not dependent on conditions. But it's subtle, so we, we tend to, you know, we, we, we're conditioned not to notice it. Isn't it? We, we, we tend to notice it only under very special conditions, like life-threatening conditions, something you, your kind of uh, intuition takes over, your self-preservation instincts can operate very, Efficiently, when you're, when you feel, uh, physical danger. But most of us spend our lives in places, you know, where, where the amount of physical danger is minimal. You know, we like to feel safe and we have laws and police and, and burglar alarms and, <laughs> and, uh, rottweilers and things like this. <laughs> Where, you know, lock the doors and, and, uh, you know, have this sense of security. And, and yet, within the most secure situation, uh, we can suffer. So, just to, to reflect on this, love and hate, uh, then to, you know, I was, this, it's what I said before, that this love then, or unconditioned love, I see, the more that we trust in this awareness, then we begin to recognize that's, that's natural to us. Unconditioned love is natural. It's not some kind of high attainment. And so rather than, than seeing yourself as some miserable sinner because of your thoughts and your emotional habits, <laughs> your memories, you begin to see, see, you know, when you, you begin to recognize your true nature. And you, and the more you recognize that, then you're trusting that. Because that's real, that's not, that's not a creative, that's not a romantic state. That's not a definition, it's, it's a recognition. And to recognize, then it, it takes this, this awareness of even the most subtle assumptions we make about ourselves and the world we live in. We're highly conditioned to, to interpret life through various perceptions. But as you trust in the awareness, that's not a perception. That's not a created state. That's not a compounded state. So then you, then you uh, begin to trust that. And that's common to all of us. It's not a cultural thing. It's going beyond culture or race or gender. All these other things that separate us and cause problems and, and anger and hatred and jealousy and that. It's getting beyond all that. Beyond class identity, political identity. So then to see the true nature of of love rather than this sense of a world of hate, Allah, uh, you know, that I'm a sinner, and and trying to clean up my sins on a personal level, it's I, I can't do it. Even being a monk for all these years. <laughs> you know, the, the ha- force of habit and the and the uh, and the conditioning of the mind are such, and the limitations of of our own humanity, 
the powerful emotions and instinctual energies that go through our bodies and so forth are the way they are. You know, they're not ideals. So we're, we're learning to put that in a perspective. Our personalities, our physical state, our instinctual desires and habits, intellectual abilities, we're, it's like we're witnessing them. We're actually recognizing them, not judging them, but no longer identifying. We're not limiting ourselves to these limited conditions. And so this is what I encourage you to to move towards seeing the, the true nature, love. And even if you don't believe me, that's all right. <laughs> as long as you recognize that not believing is a created state. <laughs> so, I'm trying to be punctual. It's three o'clock. And the tea has suddenly appeared. So, I invite you all to have some tea and then say in, 20 minutes. For those interested, you can uh, come back and, and if you have questions, then feel free to ask me questions. <laughs>